Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I want to welcome everybody to the Purple Room. And um, on today, on episode 12, season one, we're sitting down with a good friend of the Purple Room, a good buddy of mine. And actually, in the background, you can hear one of the songs that he actually produced and composed. But um, I want to welcome um, to the Purple Room, Ed McGuire, everybody. Hey, it's great to be here. <laughs> so what a Ed, great crowd you, you guys are. Yeah, you guys are awesome. <laughs> so Ed, um, good friend of the Purple Room, um, we had the opportunity of more or less producing a panel together. And um, with that, um, one thing I would say I love about Ed is his understanding of the music industry, his love for it, his passion, and also his insight, and also where he's going right now in the tech industry. I would, I would love to like highlight that. Now, um, Ed... Where are you from? Let's, let's start off with that. I so like I, I grew I, I'll tell people I grew up in D.C. So, you know, D.C. was built on a swamp, and swamp music has got like a little bit of funky groove to it. So, you know, I, I grew up surrounded by music, surrounded by mu- great, amazing musicians. And, uh, you know, I came to New York for school, but uh, D.C.'s always been in my heart. And we had some uh, – I grew up uh, playing with an amazing uh, – group of musicians and and there were some uh, a lot of folks that were doing some great stuff in dc back in the day and it's a you know it's a greasy funky town it's uh i always like to say it's got uh you know uh uh, southern efficiency and uh, northern charm (laughs) yeah but but for real you know dc is uh is is a hotbed of some just some amazing talent yeah, and the, isn't the White House right up the block too as well? Oh, there's some of them people too. But, you, know, you know, the people, you know, the people who really count, they don't pay a lot of attention. All that, you know. So with it, um, Ed, so your passion started with music. You were a musician. Yeah, I started playing. Uh, I, well, my dad was playing piano all the time in the house. He was obsessed with it, and right. I started playing violin when I was younger. After we took a trip to Eastern Europe, I heard these Hungarian gypsies playing violin. I said, "Man, that is." That is badass. I have to do it. So I started doing that. And, and D.C. had an amazing youth orchestra program at that time. And I started playing in the D.C. Youth Orchestra. And I'll tell you, here's a little bit of history. So Marion Barry, who was the mayor, who was uh, known for um, his, his shortcomings, Marion Barry defended the D.C. Youth Orchestra program, which I, I was playing. It was all these students who were, you know, basically from 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 the uh, from the public schools there. It was an amazing program, and Barry defended the funding for it. And I will always defend Marion Barry as you know as a you know as a champion. Um, so yeah, we got to play some amazing. Uh, we played Mahler symphonies when I was like. 10 years old, I traveled over to the UK with the, with the youth orchestra and uh, ended up playing in bands, uh, picking up uh, electric bass when I was a teenager and mm-hmm. uh, opened up for a lot of really interesting people when I was when I was playing groups like uh, Danny Gatton, who was an amazing guitar player we used mm-hmm. to play with, and, and Henny Youngman and playing at the cellar door. And mm-hmm. there was an amazing scene in Georgetown and... and uh, uh, yeah, it was um, it was a good place to come from, and and we've we, there were a, f- a few of the folks I grew up with have, have gone on to become some pretty uh, pretty well known musicians as well too. So, so describe to me the scene around that time. Was this like the seventies, the eighties? Yeah, so it was. Uh, I would say it's like early eighties. Okay. Um, and the, the DC scene had a had several uh, sort of several contingencies. So there was like there was like there was the hardcore DC go go scene. Like if you grew up in DC, you heard that in the air. Mm-hmm. So it was like sort of a deep funk and deep shuffle funk um there there was a regional music it never kind of broke but there was also uh, a big sort of roots music scene uh, well maybe we'll say companies uh, uh 
bands like Little Feet, for mm-hmm. instance, were were huge there, and a lot of bands like the Starline Vocal Band, you know, that were uh, that would do folk. Interestingly, uh, Fleetwood Mac mm-hmm. had done a lot of had had done a lot of writing around that time. So so there was a big folk scene. There was a big alternative radio scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a big blues scene, and there was also a big punk scene too. So. Uh, bands like Minor Threat and Fugazi mm-hmm. had uh, created this sort of do-it-yourself ethic, and you know at that time there were there were, there was also a great R and B scene. So uh, Yarborough and Peoples and uh, just an amazing number of, of like great R and B artists came mm-hmm. through DC. So it really combined uh, this sort of this this mix of you know bl- sort of Southern blues. Uh, some very sophisticated jazz, or some some folks like like Ron Holloway, uh, who was amazing. Shirley Horn, the uh, the jazz pianist, was from there. Mm-hmm. Um, Keeter Betts, who was a institution, he used to play with uh, Ellis Fitzgerald forever. So there always there would always be these great people coming through mm-hmm. to play at Blues Alley or you know at the Capitol Center. I'll tell you one you know one concert that I went to that really stuck in my mind. I was 14 years old, and Bob Marley was playing at the Capitol Center. Wow. And none of my <laughs> friends ever heard of this guy. I was right. like, I got to go. So I bought tickets for like, you know, I don't know, 15 bucks. I took the bus out there. Uh-huh. I was the only guy I knew there. And, and, <laughs> and Stanley Clark, the bass player, right. actually opened up for me. I just will never forget that. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, I was 14 years old alone. But um, but it was an amazing place to grow up. And the uh, a lot of folks have ended up going on to uh, accomplish some great things. Right. Michael Bearden, who was a... Um, he used to play at a, there was this club called the Saloon. Uh, he ended up going on to be Michael uh, Jackson's music director wow. in in this is uh, this is this. You could see him and uh, another guy who was actually my ear uh, went to a different high school, but we used to you know we used to hang out in a group was a guy named Oteil Burbridge and Oteil's an amazing bass player and musician and he's uh, he played in the Allman Brothers for about twenty years and now he's with Dead and Company. So so you coming from D.C. right, a beautiful city. Um, yeah, it seems like the music scene was big around then. What was your next transition after DC? Where did you go? Well, it was that? college, so okay. I ended up going to school in uh, at Columbia in New York wow, because right. I got in. I was the last. Uh, I, I was quite a, sort of. I would say I caught the last bus because <laughs> Columbia was all male at yeah. the time. It was an all male class, and it went coed. So I'm sure I wouldn't have gotten in afterwards. But it was <laughs> it was a dirty, ugly, dangerous, uh, you know, really. Um, Kind of wild and crazy New York of the of the eighties, yeah. And it wasn't a pretty place back. No, then. it wasn't, and it it certainly wasn't. So there was there was always an edge, and so I ended up, you know, I went to, went to school here, and I stu- I was a music major, mm-hmm. and lived in Hoboken for a couple of years, and mm-hmm. uh, it was uh, it was tough, but it was it was it was it was fun because you would always know what New York always does for somebody who comes from a town like you know if you grow up in a small town. And you're good at something, and everybody says, "Man, you're really good." It's like right. you start thinking, like, "Okay, well, I'm really good." Well, you there go to New York, right. like somebody right around the corner is like, "He's going to smoke you," right. you know. So you realize that, like, I can't be the best at everything. Right. I have you have to learn to be the best at being yourself. Right. It's a very competitive city, and it, I always tell people, yeah. "You come here, you make it here. You can make it anywhere." I it's true. That to the it's true, right now, and 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 you can and you can have personal contact, and you can meet the most incredible people here, and they will they will they will teach you, they will school you, they will mentor you. Um, but a lot of the just just the you know the aesthetic of being in New York, mm-hmm. you know, in the eighties and nineties when I was when I was pretty much doing music full time mm-hmm. was 
it was all about uh, you know, people were just trying to be the uh, the most badass they could possibly be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, um, my aunt she was heavy in the scene back then, and she was like, the clubs back then were freaking crazy. Mm-hmm. Like the lines are going around the corner, like. It was, it was a pretty good scene, you know, at that time. It was, yeah. The music culture was at a peak at that time and moment. But even with your observation of, like, the music industry from then and even up until now, I'm sure you've seen a lot of changes. Yeah, it's been amazing. I mean, I, what what's changed for me in, you know, in looking at how my friends are making a, a living, and I think we've, we've talked about this before, guys, mm-hmm. is that how you could make money from selling plastic discs. Right. And that was, that might, unfortunately, that might have been a period in history that was just a sort of a limited window in time. I actually worked for Twinbrook Music, which was an independent label distributor. Mm-hmm. We would buy from indie labels, we'd put it in Tower, and then anybody, people would go into Tower and they would buy the CDs. And that paid my rent for, for several years. But that was, if you made that CD and you sold that and it sold a million copies, man, it was uh, it was an amazing way to have just huge leverage right. a- as a musician. And the other dimension of this was that I would say we've seen the decline of live music clubs really steadily. It actually started in the 40s. And I think we got we talked a little bit about this when uh, when there was the introduction of recorded music right. and jukeboxes, right. and that actually led to these performing rights organizations like um, like ASCAP mm-hmm. and BMI, BMI. and yeah, you know, et cetera. Um, because how would you, you know, musicians who pour their heart and soul into what they're doing? How do they, you know, how do they, how do they end up? Um, getting paid and, and there was there was a musician strike in the in the 40s at the time but at least th- there was a period of time where growing up in georgetown half the clubs would have live bands then they would have cover bands and now i i i don't know the last time i've seen a cover band in new york except actually they're except for groove which is like <laughs> the best freaking club yeah that's well they play they play r&b there but i mean you go down there's certain there's certain towns in the u.s like austin and and new orleans and 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 maybe maybe nashville and a few other places where there's a live music culture but that culture has kind of gone away and it used to be that if you were a musician you could have you could have a uh middle class living you could pay your rent and support yourself, you know, through the gigs you do. And now it's just now what's happened is thirty years later, the amount of money that people get you, there's a fifty dollar gig, you know, will well, still be let's with touch us, on right? That because you know, one thing I like about you, Ed, is that you obviously were around then, and then now you see what's going on. Yeah. Now. What was the attitude when, I guess, the system of just going platinum off of a CD was like, you know, the end all be all for an artist, and now it's like, all right, the the streaming and I guess you could say the piracy started to hit. What was like the attitude yeah. at that time? Well, it was so it was amazing. So I was working in the industry just at the time when uh, people were thinking about well, if you digitize a track, then you could actually create your own like mix CDs. Mm-hmm. And this was an idea that that we were working on. And there were a couple. Of, there was some uh, company called My CD. So it was like a big deal to uh, take a bunch of tracks and then uh, and then come up with your own essentially mixtape on a CD. That was a big deal, right. right? But as soon as Napster hit, I was actually the the right after I had left the business. I, I got to say that the the, the Execs in the music business just—they just didn't see it coming, or they didn't, you know, they didn't. Uh, 
anticipate the impact of what would happen because it, the money had been so easy for so long. Absolutely. There was a great uh, documentary about Tower Records. I, I saw that. You saw that? Saw yeah, that. it was amazing, yeah, right? The um, That was, uh, yeah, it was uh, All Things Must Pass. It was, it really was amazing. I mean, Tower had this culture. It was, I really feel, uh, you know, I feel, feel sad in a way that people can't experience the same I feel it's going to come back. Not yeah. the physical form, though, yeah. but in, in a digital sense. Because I just feel like one thing I, I got from that um, documentary was that aside from you buying a record, there was a culture within the actual store itself. Mm -hmm. The experience. Yeah. And, That's um, right. And I mean, with the um, digital era, it's great and all, but I think we're getting back to a place where people want to have more user experience. Yeah. So I feel like, I mean, I'm not a futurist, but I think that digital stores will kind of come in and then people yeah. still could go in and kind of like digitize their music and you know speak to somebody like hey what do you feel about this album but on a digital forum but we'll see yeah well i mean the whole magic about going into record stores when i was when i was 13 years old i mean i would make money by like mowing lawns and delivering <laughs> papers and like babysitting whatever i could do to like hustle up a few bucks to right. take the bus down to george i'd take the metro bus down to georgetown right. and I would each week I would buy another album and there was there was something magical about that you know that album cover where you you know, you'd take the 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 cellophane off and you'd open it up and you'd mm -hmm. look at the artwork and you'd open and you'd read the lyrics and you'd look at who was playing on it mm -hmm. and you, when you would talk to somebody who worked in the record store you know you'd want to be you'd sort of want to impress them by mm -hmm. buying something so they wouldn't be like looking at you sideways right, right. and it was and Tower had that uh, the, you know that culture too, right? All the people that would work there Love were musicians, music. right? And they, what was unique about Tower is like unlike some of the big chains like uh, you know Musicland and and um, mm -hmm. Transworld, which owned uh, well Musicland owned Sam Goody and uh, and then there was you know Transworld and and some of the other bigger chains which would sort of buy top down, like they'd have somebody who would be the buyer. Tower would let any knucklehead who could <laughs> you know essentially stumble in in the morning uh, you know half you know half sober be the buyer because okay. they would know what people would buy right. and the the beautiful thing about the record industry is that if it didn't sell they could always send it back for full credit so right, right. so my job as a sales guy when i was working for the distributor we'd go into the tower in DC or in you know Fourth and Broadway or up in Boston and and we'd have a list say hey man you know you you are out of these twenty titles you probably ought to order like and you if you take the if you take the buyer out mm -hmm. for for lunch or drinks they would happily put in a nice order and you'd ship the order and people would sell people would buy sometimes sometimes they wouldn't but right. um, but this idea of having that you know on the ground like understanding what people would want and then the fact that tower was they were they were good to people they were really good to people uh, they were good to labels they were good to distributors and it's it was tragic that they took on so much debt and that was actually what sunk them it wasn't really the changes in the in the industry that proved fatal to them but they were, you know, they had this culture where you would just go hang out at Tower and they would have the listening stations where you'd talk to people and everybody would just, they, it, it, was, it, was the, it was the hot social thing to do to play in a band back in the 90s. Now, today, you ask what's different, right? I think today it's almost like being in a startup has the social cachet of being in a band. <laughs> 
So with the demise of um, Tower, and we do miss you, Tower. I hope you come back one day. Fourth and Broadway, baby. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was a huge story. It's still in, it's still in Japan too. It's really? still, still going. Yeah, right. yeah. They they uh, actually the they're I think they're probably eighty or ninety stores in Japan. Right. But uh, yeah, Russ Solomon, the founder, just passed away. Oh. Uh, he passed away. He was watching a football game. <laughs> I thought he <laughs> was watching the, the TV. But, yeah. So with the demise of Tower, like, um, why do you think the labels were so late to it? They didn't believe it. it was going to be such a big... Well, it was the first time that really digital disruption had really impacted an industry in a way that was going to be uh, uh, you know, permanent and an, ex- and an existential threat. Mm-hmm. So I, I, in some respects, I'd say I, I don't blame them because nobody had ever seen this happen before, that when you turn music into ones and zeros i mean they'd been they'd been it used to be that music would get captured on a little plastic or vinyl disc Mm -hmm. and that vinyl disc would it would somebody would have to print it up and somebody would have to ship it out physically and somebody would have to design the art and the on the and print up the cardboard that would go into the sleeves and the cases and and that was that was a man there was a manufacturing um like a chain, Bar- yeah, barrier, yeah, and it was a barrier to entry that kept people from getting into it at scale. But all of a sudden, when you reduce this music to ones and zeros that can be re- reproduced without any uh, degradation, in- infinitely, that was a completely new concept. And I don't think anybody that was in the industry in a in a decision making uh, role at that time had appreciated, you know, how how powerful it was going to be. I mean, you look at what happened with Napster. They figured, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll get the government to shut Napster down. Mm-hmm. But Nutella and other peer-to-peer services were out there and BitTorrent, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Were, yeah. And once, listen, once the genie's out of the bottle, man, you just, you can't put it back in. You had a whole generation that was socialized right. not to pay for music. Right. So if we want to look at it as like a ship that um, has a hole in it and it's kind of sinking, what would you say was the solution of the plug that kind of came into? I wouldn't say solve that problem or mm. solve that uh, disruption, but kind of pacify it. Yeah, it's a great no. It's a great question. I don't think it's been fully pacified because the uh, royalty streams that people used to depend on mm-hmm. for you know for their livings just went away. Mm-hmm. And there's a guy named Jonathan Taplin who uh, was a uh, wrote a book called Move Fast and Break Things. He, I heard him speak last year, and he had. Uh, been very close with Levon Helm, who was the drummer for the group, the band, and and he created a whole body of work, and he had these royalties that were coming in, and when he hit the age of seventy and he got cancer, mm-hmm. all of a sudden his royalties dropped 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 away, and he freaked out, and uh, he, so Jonathan's writing this book saying, okay, Google and Facebook are evil, and mm-hmm. uh, I, you know it was it was it was a correct diagnosis of the problem. I don't know that it was necessarily a diagnosis of the causes or the solutions, but the. Um, uh, the rise of streaming has helped a little bit, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of debate about this too. Because who's to say that the the uh, the revenues that people get from streaming music are fair? Okay. I mean, they're set by statute. Um, they're very um, it, they're a lot less, right? I mean, you 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 know what happens, right? I mean, you used to sell a million discs and you would get a nice big fat check, right? right? I mean, if it's all right, maybe you're getting fourteen percent royalties. That's at least enough to um, you know, to pay the mortgage right. on the house, right, and and ha- live a real middle class life, and mm-hmm. uh, the streaming revenues just are not 
providing that right. that backfill. And I think it's forcing artists too to put out so much content just so they could obviously build up, I guess, enough royalty catalog. From yeah, catalog. Because yeah. I'm noticing even on the um, hip hop side of things, like people are dropping albums every three months. Right. And it's it's kind of destroying the market in a sense. I feel right. Like. Well, that's right. And and it, there's another there's another aspect of this too because there used to be these production barriers to entry. So if you uh, reduce music to a uh, supply and demand equation where mm. in the past, say in the 1960s, if you wanted to record an album and then have that album appear in stores, there was a there were are, were limited ch- channels to distribute that. And it also cost a lot of money to hire a recording studio and you had to buy magnetic tape and and it was it was a it was it was truly like a physical manufacturing process to bring that that music to market. And now, uh, with the advent of uh, incredibly powerful recording tools, and believe me, I'm I'm a, a as big a fan of Pro Tools and Logic and Ableton mm-hmm. as you're going to find. Mm-hmm. But it means that you can it, it, you don't have to necessarily you don't have to pay. It used to be a hundred bucks an hour, two hundred bucks an hour at, at Unique or Power Station. You'd have to you'd have to go to these places to get a record that sounded good. Now right. with a you know with a twelve hundred dollar laptop and and maybe a you know, maybe a, couple, a few hundred dollars worth of software and interfaces and, right. and a decent mic, you know, you're replicating what, what would have cost you $20,000 mm-hmm. in 1996 dollars. You could record in under, you know, a thousand, you've got to pay the musicians. That's about it, right. right? So it's easier to produce the distribution. There's no friction involved with the distribution. Right. And the... Uh, uh, and then, of course, the urgency is right. uh, is there, right? Because people are just, you know, they're 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 dying to just get more content out right, there. Right. So, so there's more supply than demand, and this has always been the issue, right? Because everybody wants to be in music, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not like, you know, I used to say we used to have all these labels that would come and want to be distributed. It's like, oh, I want to be in the record business because it's a lot cooler to say that you're in the record business versus you're in the uh, accounting uh, in the shoe business, <laughs> yeah, but. A lot of a lot more people need shoes and accounting uh, than they do. The, well, that's right, and and it's and it's a, it's discretionary, right? I mean, right. we would say True. now a lot of people would disagree with that and, I and, and say every day, right? I mean, music is uh, it's it's uh, it's medicinal, it's foundational, it's mm-hmm. spiritual, it's nourishing to the bo- the mind, the body, and the soul. Mm-hmm. However, it's virtually free with YouTube and and Spotify and these other streaming services. So, you know, turning that effort and that soul of the musicians and the creators that put that, you know, put that thought into it, into, you know, really into a living is, has, has become a real challenge. Right. And even before we even segue, because I want to touch on as to how we met, you know, mm-hmm. Purple Throne and with the panel that we had, but I want, you had brought up a key point. You had brought up about like Spotify and Apple Music. And it seems to me, it's like, all right, the streaming industry kind of, got a little bit regulated in terms of like these giants started to rise up and now they're starting to even hit more of a global market through I guess you could say the um, stock exchange mm-hmm. as of recent you saw Spotify being one Absolutely. of these mavericks yeah, rising yeah. up they went public um, what are your thoughts about that yeah that's uh, I've heard boy. mixed reviews I, th- I have heard mixed reviews. I'll, I'll tell you, you know, from the standpoint, so I, I knew, I know the business model at, at Spotify, I know the business model at Pandora, and, or, or listen, they're not, you know, these aren't as super profitable as some software companies. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's, uh, yeah, that's on a relative basis, but it is sad because there's, that's where the, that market cap, it ref- actually reflects kind of a broader 
challenge that we're facing in our economy today, which is that the aggregators of information and those who control the, these distribution channels, whether it be Facebook, Google, Amazon, uh, Apple, to maybe to a lesser extent, but um, they, they, there's an, a massive uh, accumulation of profits and wealth in those businesses, whereas the creators are kind of left without, uh, they're, they're, they're seeing their livelihoods sort of seep, sap away mm -hmm. and ebb away very gradually. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's disturbing. I think um, it does bring up a, uh, you know, a bigger issue that, that, that is, I think, some of the idealism around the blockchain space is trying to address is that, you know, if you have these incredibly centralized systems that concentrate all of the the market power and the uh, essentially the profitability of an industry mm -hmm. you know that wh where where does that leave the in, uh, the creators and it kind of content. goes against what they i guess they stand for i mean i mean they well, kind of give off that image of they're for the creators but then it's like it's such a wide margin in terms of the creators really getting paid the right way well that's right right yeah so and you kind of already hinted as to where we're going to go next with this conversation so um we met ed um we had a panel mm -hmm. at purple throne and mm -hmm. the main concept of the panel we're up to like panel three now but you were a part of our first one and um, the key point of this conversation was just basically how do we see blockchain technology or cryptocurrency um, disrupting or more or less pairing up with the music industry. Mm -hmm. And one thing I remember about the panel and everybody walked up to me after it is just how um, much information, how well you spoke about mm -hmm. it. And from your observation now, do you feel like with blockchain technology, it could be one of the solutions in terms of like, I guess, spreading out the resources and the money with um, these streaming companies? Or at least figure out a more direct way yeah. to chime in on royalty payments. It's it's a, it's a great question, and I think there are uh, multiple layers to that. I will I will say that on one hand, uh, there is a there's like a fundamental um, opaqueness about the music industry, which is that artists the way they get paid, the way their music gets tracked is, you know, has always been really difficult to figure out. Absolutely. Like, nobody, I mean, if you go back and read the book Hitmen, which is pretty, a pretty hilarious book, by the way. Good uh, book. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, listen, the music industry was run by uh, a lot of shady characters and, and accounting was certainly not something that people paid a lot of attention to back in the day, <laughs> right? But the reality is, is that, is that, Actually, accounting for uh, you know for royalties and and you know publishing rights and distributing you know all of these um, financial benefits off sales it's, it's very complicated. It has always been very complicated. It's been expensive and it's been very difficult to administer. So you 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 do have to say from the standpoint of, of for record companies, this has not been an easy thing to say. Like, how much did you earn? Or I mean. Artists are never happy because it's it's never they've never been able to get a straight answer. But from the standpoint of the record companies, mm -hmm. it's also not that easy to provide it either. So there, it, it's not necessarily honest. Record companies still struggle with this. Have always struggled with this in, in a lot. So How to calculate yeah. Sales. So the concept of being able to encode. I mean, I'm actually very optimistic about some some projects that I've I've been uh, uh, been privy to that are designed to encode uh, royalty, authorship, uh, sharing, and, and, and other permissions into tracks themselves. Right. So if you can have smart, con if you can say, okay, here's a digital file, um, 
And these are the authors, these are the contributors. And if you reuse it, this is how everything gets distributed. And it's real simple. It, it's all embedded in the contract and the software. So I think that could be super uh, effective mm-hmm. to advance how quickly that you know the the distribution benefits happen. So to translate for our listeners, what you're saying is basically embedded in a smart contract in a song. That's right. Oh, got it. That's right. Yeah. Or uh, yeah. All the all the royalty gets embedded into a uh, into that digital file. Right. Um, the other thing that's that's interesting to think about, uh, you know, crypto assets. So there's this concept of being uh, non fungible. So that's a weird word, but non-fungible means that something is like unique. When you make a digital copy, like if I make made a digital copy of like my tune, right? I can send you that digital copy and it's going to sound the same, right? Mm-hmm. But if you if you actually encode an asset on using blockchain technology, you can make that unique. Mm-hmm. So I can't copy that because right. it's like there's only one copy of that. So I have to make a second copy, and that is actually a different copy Mm -hmm. so i can't so you can provide you can create all sorts of ways to to track how uh music is 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 copied and distributed and yeah i think there's it's interesting so a friend of mine tatiana moroz came up with the tatiana coin and Mm -hmm. and as as you know there's some other folks that are uh that are looking at ways to um tokenize their music and purple, say like purple throne purple, <laughs> like purple throne exactly like what you guys are doing right um you guys uh you know if you if you encode a you, you attach a token to the um uh you know to a unique digital asset then you then you're getting around that fundamental problem that happened with napster and nutella and and all these other streaming services, which is essentially you have like just a single version of, you know, or you have you know, a, uh, you can have a unique, uh, I would say, a, a expression of a, of a digital asset. And Well, I just had a light bulb moment and based upon what you said, Ed, because it's like in the earlier days of the music industry, it's like the record labels had more of a fit, more of a bigger share of the market and then the artists kind of got like, I guess less. Yeah. And then with the Napster, or I guess you could say when the um, piracy situation took place, it's like the record labels kind of hurt. And then I guess you could say the streaming companies are winning. But with blockchain technology, it's one way that this could be the solution where both parties can combat piracy Mm -hmm. and also ensure fair share of royalties. That's right. And I think what's, uh, you know, what's been the, the real challenge, right, is that the um, for artists, the promise of the inter- the of having the internet opening up and having that level playing field, let's let's face it, it did not play out. Right. <laughs> and uh, there's um, a guy named Jaron Lanier. You you probably seen him. He was like one of these VR pioneers. But he wrote a book called you know Who Owns the Future, and he's he's written a lot of uh, a lot of uh, essays on this. But the idea was like, okay, wouldn't it be great if you didn't have to go through these gatekeepers who were labels and distributors and record companies mm-hmm. because we all know that the record companies were, well, there's a lot of interesting stuff about the record. I heard an uh, interesting perspective that I'll show I'll you in a minute. <laughs> um, but yeah, they, they, those were the gatekeepers in the old days. But if you were like a great artist and you wanted to sketch your, your, your music out to your, tr- your true fans, I mean, Kevin Kelly talks about like if you have one thousand true fans and you can reach them and they're willing to pay a hundred bucks a year for your content or your music or what you do, 
hey man, that's like that's like a you know that's a, a decent income right for for a year. But um, one, a really funny thing I had had heard about was the uh, God, I don't know where I just read this, but it was like there there was a cigar. Th- no, I know what it was. It was Frank Zappa was talking about <laughs> the um, uh, and this goes back a while. Back in the '60s, there were like the cigar chomping guys in the in the record industry uh-huh. and somebody would come to them with something crazy like i don't know what this is ah, just put it out there ah, whatever mm-hmm. and then they would they said no no we have to hire some and the record companies decide no we have to hire uh you know smart long-haired hippie guys because mm-hmm. or uh, or these young kids you know they're the ones that actually know what's happening and, and what happened was is that as the um the younger generation uh, took over the record business, they actually became more conservative. Mm. They didn't want to put out that crazy stuff. I don't know what that crazy music is. I mm. mean, whoever had signed Frank Zappa and put out Freak Out, and <laughs> I don't know if you ever heard that record, man. It is, it is, it is pretty nutty. You know, <laughs> to have that kind of stuff coming out of a major label. Right. I mean, seriously, you go back and look at like the Ed Sullivan show. Oh, God, I was seeing this. Um, I, I was seeing like... Uh, um, Rasan Roland Kirk on the Ed Sullivan show for like 11 minutes with um, I, I know it was Charles Mingus and uh, Archie Shep. It was some crazy out jazz on national TV right. for 10 minutes. What, what happened to that, right. right? And that all as 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 the record industry became industrialized, it became an industry, and people wanted to have hits. Mm-hmm. Everything got more and more conservative, and, and people were like, "All right, we're playing this this model, which is like one percent of our product makes three hundred percent of our profits. So ninety nine percent of what we put out is going to lose money, but we have to. So therefore, we have to minimize our risk. Mm-hmm. So that." actually resulted in the quality of the stuff getting put out being reduced because people were people were putting out crappier stuff because right. they were trying to sell it. Yeah, they got comfortable. They saw a recipe and was like, all yeah. right, let's just apply the same paradigm to each right. project. But, but, you know, music is not about, uh, it's not about money, right? It's it's about, it's and I actually, I love this guy, Nassim Nicholas Taleb. He was the guy who wrote... Um, uh, the Black Swan and, mm-hmm. and um, Fooled by Randomness, but his his new book called uh, Skin in the Game. He mm-hmm. talks about how you know if you if artists have soul in the game, like if you you truly put your soul out there and you are you know you're exposed to the world, mm-hmm. that's your this is your art. You're going to be judged by how authentic your feelings are. Absolutely right, and and that's what that's what true artists do, but. People who are making a business out of music, they're like, no, no, no. I mean, I saw this happen in jazz, right? It's like, no, no, no. If you want to play, have it play on CD one hundred one point nine. That was like the let's say smooth jazz. Yeah. We had that happen. That happened to some folks that I was working with too. Like they would put the. It's like, no, man, you got to put the. You got to put the stuff that's got some edge on it, man. That's like that's the that's the best yeah. stuff. But the, uh, but com- you know, the commercial instincts took over, and ultimately, it it. Uh, didn't survive because you had all these other forces and it's you can't really point a finger at any any one of these forces I think for how where we've ended up today but I think I'm going to come back to blockchain because I think what blockchain allows is is these technologies these decentralized technologies this way to have trust uh, and establish essentially these um, networks of uh, how people value things Content, music, creation, mm. and then how that value is exchanged, mm. that's and that's 
revolutionary. It is. It seems like the solution to all of the um, problems that we spoke about in the different yeah. decades of music. Well, it is, but it's super hard to really to, to, to turn into a viable system. Explain that a little bit more. So, all right, well, here's the idea. So what do I mean by that? So we talk about a, a purple coin. Purple coin is a perfect example, right? You guys are, you know, what do you value in your purple, uh, in, in the in the purple throne network? You value music creation. You you value services. You value um, people. Value performances. Um, but the, and within that network, the, that will um, people will be, you know. To somebody who's in that network and values it, like that, that music is going to mean a lot more to them than somebody who's in the um, uh, shoe network, <laughs> you know, in uh, in Bangladesh, right. right? Who likes sneakers, for instance, or mm-hmm. whatever, right? But but when you have these affin- these communities mm-hmm. of a common shared affinity, shared values, mm-hmm. so values turned into value. And it's 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 a very it's a fascinating uh, philosophical angle here because the concept of value, like how you measure value, is so fundamental to um, how society is organized. Right. I mean, I would say like, well, how much is how much is music worth to you? Well, you know, I would pay up for a lot, right. but we always think of measuring value in dollars, right? So, I mean, you can you can take a a physical, you could take a microphone here, you could take a, a computer and say, all right, well, that's worth, you know, $600 because it costs $400 to source all the parts and $200 for the labor, et cetera. Uh, but how do you value uh, inspiration? How do you value um, being in a community of people right. that, you know, and, and th- how do you value uh, these intangible uh assets in a sense where people are willing to pay for it and what blockchain allows you to do is create a coin or create a token create a representation of that value say like well hey man that music is definitely worth you know a thousand purple coin to me (laughs) Uh, you know i for me i'll pay that and somebody else in my network who shares my uh my my set of values will exchange that right right so these are. This is a pretty revolutionary idea, and we're super, super early. But if you look forward, say five or ten years, maybe we have a. You know, you got folks who are in like a snowboarding community. You got a music community. You have a, a rare sneakers community. You've got um, uh, hair. All kind of hair. Oh, definitely it's hair community. Shot. Hair. Yeah. Or or lack of hair. You know? <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. that and what that does too is because because these are uh, decentralized and um, potentially you know self-governing systems, mm-hmm. you don't have to deal with one person in the middle. Like you don't have to have like a company or one person who set who ends up being like the grand chief poobah who determines <laughs> what how much something what is. Right. Yeah. I mean that's how the that's how the way society's been organized like forever, right? You right. grew up in the village, like, all right, I, you know, Zog has, uh, you know, a, 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 a dead deer, and <laughs> you know, I want the dead deer, and I have some uh, some flints over here, 
and I want to trade the Flint for that, right. but we have a disagreement, then you know, Big Chief has to come in and say like, okay, no, you don't no kill Zog. You, you, there would always be this sort of centralization always led to a, uh, a way to resolve disputes and right. to keep coherence and harmony right. in, you know, in, in small groups and larger groups and bigger groups. But we always relied on centralization to keep essentially to keep coherence. Right. And you know what helped regulate that too, believe it or not? Currency. I yeah. mean, um, cause I, I took a class and one of my uh, minors was urban sociology. So it basically studied how cities were formed and yeah. just how communities come around and are they built. Right. And, um, the key thing that you had brought up a good point, like in these centralized societies, the guy who had the most resources, got all the women in the tribe, mm -hmm. he was the chief. And, um, it got to a point when they started to realize, well, all right, in order for us to communicate, communicate with these other tribes in a mm -hmm. sense, we got to figure out a way where two of our pieces of salt or like two dares is equivalent to four of their right. saber tooth tigers. And right then and there, that's how it increased the power of these societies was how they basically translated division of labor to um, currency. That's right. Right. So you brought up a good point. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I, and and whether it's like cowrie shells or pemmican mm -hmm. or uh, you know or or pel or you know pelts or you know giant yap island stones, whatever <laughs> it is, or gold. Right. right? Gold is gold, easy. Right. right. Because but those become you know me means of uh, stores of value. Right. And they're also methods of exchange, and they're uh, you know they become uh, ways for us to uh, express. And exchange value, and this is what is so interesting about blockchain. Kind of bringing bringing the point back mm -hmm. here is that how do we, you know, how do we express what we value? And this, to me, is the most fundamental uh, uh, insight and the most powerful uh, implication of this technology is that it changes how how we value what we value, and how that value is exchanged. Right. It's powerful, it man, is. because it doesn't. Then you don't have to belong to, you know, a, a village or a tribe or a county or a, a country. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be a group, an affinity of people who are your community, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you have this ability to kind of transcend uh, borders and connect with the like-minded people who mm -hmm. will create a deep connection. Mm -hmm. uh, it, the challenge is that there's always going to be pushback from uh, from government, mm -hmm. uh, from existing structures, right. and we also need relevant. You know, we need anchor points. Mm -hmm. So we need we need dollars. We need we're going to need dollars. We're going to need yen. We're going to need euro. We're going to need yuan. It's uh, that's always going to be with us. And it's very early, but I, I wanted to go back to you had brought up something in terms of like the um, industries that are going to give some pushback. It's like I've noticed, especially with producing um, the music meets. Um, tech panel with um, Purple Throne and the one that you were on, we probably ran through about 10 different labels. And when I say ran through, basically trying to get some of their representatives to come on the panel. And at first it was like the aha moment, like, oh, blockchain technology, music, it sounds good. And then when they really started to dissect what we had going on over here, it was either one, they didn't understand, mm -hmm. two, they were afraid, mm -hmm. or three, it was like, all right, this is going to be powerful, so let's try to stop this or let's just step away. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel like that attitude is what... I. I wasn't in the industry around the time when I guess you could say um, piracy and like MP3 started to like destroy their industry in a sense. But um, it seems like I feel like that same attitude that was happening then it's starting to happen again. Mm -hmm. and I think they might be late to the party again. Well, they don't. And certainly, the labels are not in a uh, position of strength now. I mean, I, I at, at this point, I think it's it's more of a missed opportunity than anything else because if you're going to engage people who are in the industry, I mean, you, they. 
the, the problem is that, that the industry, as Frank Zappa said, the, the old cigar chomping uh, folks are long gone, right, who didn't care. For them, it's just a business, right? It's, uh, you have people with other agendas, and, and uh, I think the nature of, the, of labels now is that you probably do not have people who have a sense of, of perspective and history who saw what, who, who really saw what was happening in the 90s and, were, and say, wait a minute, now something's happening that's very different and we need to get on, on top of it. The, unfortunately, the label, and people don't, you know, the labels don't pay people to stick around for 20 years and be smart. It's, uh, you know, most, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a very short-sighted industry in, in many respects. But on the other hand, I mean, I think that what's that telling you there, there's, uh, there can be a little cognitive distance if people are seeing, uh, that there could be a threat to their existing business model or listen, if people don't understand it, that's totally cool too, because you just don't understand. Yeah. We know this is, this is hard stuff. I mean, this is not like you, you shouldn't expect that somebody's heard about it once and understands it. I mean, let's be, let's be honest here. Understanding blockchain is, I mean, in my, in my experience, it's the mo- almost the most difficult thing I've ever is, had to is. learn to understand. We're on episode, what, like 12 now? And when it comes down, I'm still learning. So it's, it, it really is, it's, it's, it's profound. And that's why it's going it, to, it will take some time. So we're not, you know, we don't look for, uh, you know, we don't look for a huge uh, upheaval anytime here, but, or any, anytime in the near future. But I think we do look for uh, innovators right. in the music. And what I've seen in the music industry, you know, what you guys are doing and um, some other folks who are working on the production side and, and also in the, like, the artist representation, representation side, mm-hmm. but also with art, digital assets. And uh, you even think about CryptoKitties, man. I mean, CryptoKitties are uh, unique digital goods. I mean, it, why can't music be that way, right? Right, right. And you had mentioned something earlier, Ed. You said um, somebody's going to own the future. Um, what? Who do you feel is going to own the future? Your well, personal opinion about it. I mean, I I, I hope that we all do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, That's a good answer. And, and I and I think in and to the answer of the question, right? Which is that we that if we you know if we set sit aside if we uh, if we allow others to take action then what will happen is over the last 20 years, you know, people give up their, uh, their data to Facebook willingly or their music to, to YouTube. They don't push back. They, it's like it's okay that Google knows more about you than probably, you know about probably even your mother does, <laughs> right, or you know, any of your family. And so we have an opportunity now to, uh, to define and shape how our values are measured and exchanged and created and if we're smart about it you know we're going to make a we're going to make systems that you know that actually allow us to uh to benefit people in a much more equitable fair manner so everybody gets rewarded in a way that that is that they perceive as fair and listen you can you can win you can lose not everybody's going to uh, do great. Not everybody's going to be a success. Some people will, but all I think all anybody wants in the world is is a, just a fair shot, right? And I think if we, if if the if the deck isn't stacked against artists, 
listen, just be able to give it your fair shot and see how things work out, right? That's all we want. That was a beautiful answer. And um, it's like with this whole interview, um, you did a really great job at expressing what you saw in the, in the industry, where it's going. Um, but I wanted to ask and kind of narrow in on you and what personal endeavors you have going on. I know you have your own firm. Like yeah, what's going sure, on sure. On that side of things. So yeah, we're doing with? a few things. So I've been... Um, a couple things. So I'm an insights partner with Momenta, which is a uh, Momenta Partners is a connected industry firm that uh, has a an early stage VC arm. Uh, we invest in uh, connected industry that's manufacturing uh, smart uh, smart spaces. We'll call it sort of smart cities, uh, energy and. Um, uh, and also, uh, you know, sort of tra- you know, traditional industry. Mm-hmm. Um, with a, with a v- uh, we have advisory, so we advise kind of big industrial firms on how to digitize their products. And there's also an executive search firm. And with Bluemont Partners, we are uh, we are launching a uh, an, a crypto asset research effort mm-hmm. for. Uh, institutional investors. So our goal is to help bring big money into the token space and make it safe for uh, family offices and, and institutional investors to have you know, greater comfort and visibility in what they're doing. Because I was a, I was on Wall Street for 17 years, mm-hmm. and I see crypto assets as really a new, really uh, absolutely new opportunity. So, so we're launching that, and you know I still play bass and, and violin and keyboards at home, and you know trying to you know trying to hang and support with my my musician friends <laughs> whenever I can. <laughs> That's awesome, Ed. And I mean, this being our last episode in the season finale. I'm glad that we were able to double back with a friend to the room, you know, somebody that was with us at the beginning and also, you know, one of our friends with the panel. And, um, you know, in conclusion, um, I want to ask you this, and this is the last question I want to ask you because you, I, I know you got to run to another meeting or something. But, Ed, um, from a futurist uh, approach or just like what you're seeing with the industry, what are your predictions for blockchain in the music industry? Yeah, I, I think... It's, I think we'll have to have some patience in the space because uh, there's always a, uh, an element of, of organizational and cultural inertia when you're dealing with the industry of music itself. And I think in, in particular, it's going to be difficult to push back when the incumbents are companies like Google, YouTube, Facebook, Spotify, and uh, Pandora. Um, not that they're necessarily bad actors, mm-hmm. but that the business interests that are vested in keeping things the way they are, that, you know, it's just always the it's always the way it is. It's going to require a serious amount of patience in building new communities. So, uh, I'm very optimistic that the current wave of innovations, uh, what you guys are doing, is uh, is leading the way. And what we also have with uh, a number of other folks globally, mm-hmm. um, you know, will result in you know a uh, maybe a generational shift in the way that people look at music and how to support musicians. So I think that that's, you know, we want to support musicians who are us. There are, there are people, there are community and, and musicians also want to feel like what they do is going to be, uh, you know, fairly reckoned with, but also, uh, that, that we'll be able to create these networks and communities that actually mean more than just more than just just money, right? Because in the old days, I, and here's I'll just kind of leave you with one 
kind of parting thought here is like the, the idea with a blockchain is that it, it creates a record that's forever, you know, and in the past you'd come with a record and it would go, you know, it'd go through tower and somebody would buy it and they, and the ones that wouldn't sell would get punched and they would get forgotten. And like, you know, you're like, what happened to that great record? Well, yeah, it's gone. But maybe we can actually, you know, we're sort of building edifices. We're building, uh, we can build these kind of digital monuments to art that are, that are going to last for a while. And then you're going to go, you know, when you're like 70, 80 years old, it's like, man, I wonder who was it that was listening to that record back then? Who did that record? And you go back and say, oh, yeah. And for artists to be able to track, you know, who engages, who remixes the music and the way it gets created right. uh, years and years out, that's going to be a, a pretty amazing thing. Like our memories, we'll, we'll rely on our memories too, but uh, it'll, they'll, 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 be, they'll be at least written in our, in our digital stone. Well said, Ed. And, um, you know, in conclusion, I just want to thank everybody to listening for listening to The Purple Room. Um, it's been a great season. I want to thank our producers. I want to thank um, more or less our sponsors, ICO Daddy, ICO Examiner, uh, Purple Throne for giving us this platform to have this podcast. And um, a lot of great things in store for season two. Um, thank you, everybody. Ed, thank you for being All right, one of our greatest amazing. guests, our yeah. last guest Fantastic. on this. Fantastic. Season one, it's a wrap. Woo. Awesome. All right. Yay.